Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon, everybody. How's everybody doing today? I am peachy. <laughs> doing good. We've got myself, Jason, we've got Mike, and we've got Ron, and today we have Brooke with us as well. Mike, tell us a little bit about how things are going in Colorado today. It is like spring fever out here. It was, I don't know, let me look. At, it's 70 degrees right now. It's been awesome working with the door open. It's not too hot. It's just like Alaska weather. It's exactly what I like. But that's it. Since I talked to you guys last time, that's all that's changed is, is the weather. Ron, what about you in Wyoming there? Breezy. Getting the Chinooks supposed to have uh, snow coming in tomorrow, but it's not supposed to get super cold, only like 37 to 40 degrees. So I love the spring snows. It kind of sets everything off anyway. So it's just dried out, though. It's been super muddy because the, the Chinook winds always bring the warm air. So it melts the snow. Everything's mudded up, ruddy back county roads and then you know these these snows just come on top of it to keep the mud going yeah so that's the only downside otherwise it brings on everything that i look forward to in the spring so it's all good are you hitting the grouse up yep i've been on uh, sharp tails the last three days and i will tell you i don't know if it's a full moon or what but these dudes are acting goofy they are everywhere but on the lek i should say they're on the lek what the traditional lek has been though for the last 12 years is not it so it's uh it's been interesting trying to get any images or or video is it the same luck that we photograph sharp tails on it is yeah so normally what is it like a 25 yard circle yeah, that that's, they're in traditionally but... that's where these guys have been and this year i mean they are scattered 150 yards you know one pair 100 yards over here one pair 35 yards to their right i mean it's just they're paired off. It seems that there's no females there. So when the females show up, obviously that's going to bring the males, you know, to the traditional lek. But, but without the females, they're just kind of off doing their own thing. You know, I don't know if it's a new generation of birds or what. I, I'm sure it can change. I just haven't seen it over the last decade. So I'm not sure what these dudes are thinking. Can you tell the difference between a younger bird and an older bird just by visually just seeing them? Or is it something that is just attitude? The easiest way to tell the difference is... When the younger birds come on, they're the first ones to get run off and they will keep them like clear out on the fringes. You know, as you and I saw last year, you knew they were younger birds because the feathers weren't fully mature. The air sacs weren't fully mature, but they were the last ones on the lek um, because they're just trying to have some fun getting the action too. So they'll stay there when the other birds are moving to cover and feeding and, you know, getting ready to go take a nap after they've been active for the last two or three hours. Brooke, have you ever photographed sharptails? No, you know, I don't have much experience with any birds at all, really. It's definitely on my list of things to start adventuring into. I know a guy that can help you out. Yeah, we can hook you up. Awesome. Sharptails and sage grouse, (laughs) if you ever want to do that. Grouse especially is definitely something I'd be interested in. Um, I don't know what it is about birds. I've gone out on attempts to go birding, and there was an eagle's nest by my old place um, when I lived out in Colorado. And I would head out to the eagle's nest, see them out on the nest and say to myself, all right, I'm just going to sit here, wait for them to get off the nest, swoop down, start flying. And then I get distracted because I see, oh, deer prints. I wonder where those go. Or, huh, that looked like that might have been a coyote way across the valley. Let me just go. Let me just go check it out real quick. 
And then next thing you know, I've forgotten that Eagles even existed in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Brooke, you guys have everybody just heard from Brooke Bartleson. Brooke, I'm going to let you tell everybody what it's like in Utah since you're about <laughs> 20 miles from where I'm at. Right down the road. Um, it's yeah. really dry and warm down here um, in the valley. I live in, in Salt Lake City right now. But it's really deceiving because as soon as you get up into the mountains, it's there's still patches of snow and the mud is slick as can be. So And it's really icy. Everything's freezing up at night there, too. I was hanging out on my porch today editing photos and... It was kind of sun showering a little bit. And I was like, man, this is perfect shooting conditions. I should I should get up and head up towards Park City and see if I can find the elk. But then I got kind of turned off thinking about what the weather would be like up through the canyon. So classic spring. <laughs> you know, I've got summer fever. You know, it's not over yet, though. It's always hard unless you live in a place like where Ron does, where you get a lot of activity with a certain species. Right. Because I'm the same way. I mean, yeah, you can go photograph elk, but really, what are you going to get? You're going to get scraggly looking antlerless elk that really don't exhibit background. yeah there's no behavior <laughs> there's not much they're just still surviving just to get yeah. to summer exactly it's it's rough well brooke maybe you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself tell us about your journey into photography i mean how did this passion of yours begin man it's um there, there's a lot of moving parts to the story but i'll try and keep it as straightforward as possible so i grew up in morristown new jersey which is a relatively large town, um, not far from Manhattan, super populated suburban area. I graduated high school and moved out to Colorado for college. And I went to school in Boulder and just absolutely fell in love with the landscape of the mountains. It was so unique to me as somebody who grew up in New Jersey and wasn't familiar with landscapes that are just impressive no matter what vantage point you have. So I started kind of a very, very amateur um, passing interest in photography while I was living in Boulder. That was more landscape and lifestyle based. Um, nothing very technical. I used a GoPro or my cell phone. and would just take photos of friends out hiking um, or skiing, snowboarding rock climbing and all of that good stuff. Then I graduated and moved up to the mountains. I lived in Silverthorne, so it's really close to a lot of ski resorts, um, some national forest areas, not far from Rocky Mountain National Park in the summertime when the roads are open. And I got a camera, um, a DSLR, my first ever real camera, kind of as like a celebration. I live somewhere extra pretty now. I'm going to treat myself to a good camera and just start learning more about photography. And I put it on my bookshelf and it collected dust for like a year and a half. I don't know exactly what inspired me to pick it up again after not really doing anything photo-based for quite a while. But I started kind of resuming taking photos of people doing outdoor sports. I wasn't really loving it, but I always had my camera with me everywhere I went. And of course, as you guys know, you know, when you're driving long distances, you see pronghorn off the side of the road, you see foxes in your neighbor's front yard when you live in the mountains. And I started pointing the camera at animals and it was like somebody lit a bomb inside of me. And all of a sudden, like nothing else was exciting in the same capacity as taking photos of animals. And I just, I ran with it. I had no idea what I was doing. I have no formal education in photography whatsoever. Um, I don't really have the attention span even for YouTube videos or how-to books. So I really learned a lot by trial and error. I look back at some of the photos that I thought were the best things in the world and I just giggle, you know, at myself. But I think it's a great way to learn just by doing. I think we can all do that. Did you have anybody that you kind of mentored with, Brooke? Or did you? No. It was definitely just trial by fire. I did not. It was, I call myself the wild west of photography because I was all over the place when I started. I didn't understand 
what the point of a tripod was. I didn't understand what I was doing with settings. I just played with them nonstop until things started to look pretty. It isn't until the last like year and a half, actually, that I've started to become acquainted with other wildlife photographers specifically. And I, I didn't really know that many people who were interested in landscape photography to learn from either. So it was very um, independent. I think that's all of our stories, though. I mean, I'd, I didn't have a formal training in photography either. It wasn't until I graduated college where I, I was given a job to go out with this professional wildlife photographer. I had no idea you could even make a living at this thing, right? Right, yeah. And it's like, boing, you know, it's like, holy moly, I'm going to try this out. So you just buy a camera and go. Yeah, sometimes I almost feel like I'm cheating in a way. You know, I've found this really, really cool career and I feel like it's something most people don't think of, you know? So yeah, just like you said, like it never even occurred to me a while ago that this was something I could live off of. Mm -hmm. So tell us, uh, what was your very first DSLR? What brand? What was it? It was a Canon 6D. Um, it's right here on my shelf somewhere. Oh, I put it in my drawer. Well, it's broken to bits because I didn't even understand like how much a camera could endure <laughs> when you're shooting with it. The back screen's shattered. It's actually missing the dial. So I didn't know what settings I was shooting on. I'm going to show you guys just because <laughs> I know this is a podcast, but we've got the video running. So I didn't know what setting I was on. Um, I didn't realize <laughs> for about a year that you could look up here and it would tell you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I started out with that camera and I had one of those original Tamron 150 to 600 lenses that I bought used on eBay. Very cool. I started with the Tamron 400. You know, Tamron's an awesome um, starter brand. It's so affordable when you have no idea what the heck to be looking for. Somebody told me for wildlife photography, you want to get a telephoto lens. So I typed telephoto lens into my computer and it was like either $550 used or like $14,000 for top of the line glass. And I didn't have a clue at the time what I was looking for. So now what are you shooting? So now I shoot um, with Olympus cameras. I've got my whole little Olympus lineup behind me. I can give you guys a quick uh, size comparison here. So my old DSLR, I've got really tiny wrists. So when I'm holding this thing, my wrists are all floppy and I get sore in about 20 minutes. And now I've got this Olympus setup that I would say is like, I don't know, maybe a third smaller than my DSLR and probably about a hundred times more durable, which is exactly what I need because I am the wild west of photography. So my gear goes through a lot. <laughs> you need to start a new Instagram account. Yeah, I've thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> what are your lenses? My main lenses are my 40 to 150 um, zoom lens, which I love when I'm on the go. It's a little bit smaller. But my favorite lens um, for anything that's going to be a good distance away is my 300 millimeter. So remind me, the Olympus, is it micro four thirds or is it? It is micro four thirds. So, the, so you're getting double what? Right. The field of view is double what the focal length is. So my okay. 300 millimeter is actually a 600 millimeter equivalent. And Which then 80 to, 80 to 300. 80 to 300. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good range. And then I do yeah. have a couple of teleconverters if I need extra mm -hmm. length on that 600. Does that gear take a 2.0 pretty good? Or does how does that work, the 2.0 <laughs> teleconverter? Or? Yeah, it's, um, you know, maybe just because I'm weak and have shaky hands, I definitely say that if you've got a teleconverter on there, you do need to be using a tripod. But I do know a couple of other Olympus shooters who are like, nope, this is totally fine. Um, without any sort of tripod support. So I guess it just depends how steady you are once you get up to that range. And you're not losing any sharpness no. with the 2X on the No, Olympus. not that I've noticed. Sometimes the 300 millimeter lens that I use can be so sharp that I, I actually um, will blur my images a little bit in post-production just because out of the camera, they almost look 
CGI because of that just crazy crispness in an animal's fur. And I think once you add that teleconverter on there, it, it actually like neutralizes that like extra sharpening effect. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that Christmas in an animal's fur comparison. <laughs> I've had that same issue with the Sony stuff and it doesn't happen with the sharpness, but so I was shooting a moose this past fall and there was this really awesome mountain range behind and that mountain range looks totally computer generated because it was so out of focus that it made this perfect line. It wasn't a blurred line at all. It was it was a totally unusable photo. Oh, yeah. You know, and I'm just wondering if that's a mirrorless thing because that I would never have that happen on the Yeah, Canon. I don't know if it's a mirrorless thing because I've never really heard of it being a problem in DSLRs. And to be honest with you, I don't really, I haven't heard many other people aside from you mention a similar thing that you've noticed with a mirrorless camera but i couldn't believe it it's just i thought when i'm shooting it i'm thinking oh this can be really cool because you got this really awesome mountain backdrop but the separation between the sky and those mountains and then obviously the moose was in focus and these guys right. were way out of focus in the background but it's just a really definite line that looks like i went in and did a really lousy job of cutting it out in photoshop right it probably has the effect of looking like a really bad blend yep exactly so, so Brooke, do you have any landscape lenses at all? Because I think I've seen a little bit of some star photography in that from you, right? I do. Yeah, I've got quite a few um, landscape lenses. I do actually really enjoy landscape photography. It's challenging in a way that wildlife isn't just in terms of like setting your own intentions and like planning things really far in advance. I don't really share a lot of my landscape because um, there's plenty of people doing it better. But um, I love Milky Way. My go-to Milky Way lens is a 17 millimeter 1.2 which is just like ridiculously incredible at capturing the stars. And the new Olympus camera that just came out has this setting. It's, it's magic. I don't, I don't understand at all how it works. Um, it's autofocus for a starry night sky. That used to be my least favorite part about astrophotography, sitting there, zooming in on a star on your back screen and trying to dial in that focus. And like somehow this thing knows where the stars are and how to sharpen them perfectly. So... Really? really? My Milky Way game this season, actually. I've gone out a handful of times already, and it just became visible a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no, the full full arch is, we're about, what, a few weeks away from the full arch. I, That's one thing that I'm going to do this spring is get the full arch. and. Yeah. Where are you going to nice try and shoot So Wyoming has some of the darkest areas in the mm -hmm. lower 48, just because our population is about, oh, what, a sixth of Salt Lake City and a tenth of Denver, the whole state. So we've got a lot of open space and a lot of areas where we don't have any light pollution. So I'm just going to probably just head out to the mountains, probably on a grouse lake somewhere where I'm going to spend the night and just get it there. So how long does that last for then, Ron? The full arch, it's not very long, maybe a month yeah. where you can get the whole thing. And then it kind of rotates where you start to lose the opposite. So the leading end is what Brooke was talking about is just coming in now. And I'm no expert on astrophotography, so please double check the this information. Don't don't take this as gospel. But I have a friend who's a he's a world class astrophotographer and goes all over the country just to photograph the Milky Way. And so he's he's the one that tells me about all this. And so the full arch in March and April, and then you start to lose the leading edge of it until you are just kind of left with the, the core of 
the Milky Way for the rest of the season. There's bound to be an app for that, right? Oh, oh yeah. Photo pills. Yeah. It's the best. <laughs> Photo pills? Yeah. You said yep. that on the last podcast. I've never even heard of it. Yep. <laughs> you got to hang out with a landscape guy once in a while and they'll make you buy it while they stand there watching. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I swear somebody did that to me, but it's a great little app. <laughs> I love it. For Milky Way and also when you're like me and can't necessarily remember what time the sunsets rises or when blue hour starts or when the golden hour begins, it lists all of those little things out too. So yep. it's nice for wildlife as well. Very cool. So, so you're actually an Olympus Explorer, is that correct? That is correct. So the Olympus Explorers are a new program that Olympus just launched end of August, or it might've been mid-September. There are five of us currently, but they're always looking to grow the program. Um, and we are the Olympus ambassadors. So all social media based, um, you know, doing takeovers of the Olympus Instagram page to answer people's questions, helping out at workshops. I went to a landscape workshop actually in Great Sand Dunes um, in Colorado this past fall. And little things like that, all very social media visible to kind of get more user knowledge of Olympus cameras rather than just like advertisey, sterile brand advertisements on Facebook and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. How yeah, did so you get involved in that program? Man, that's a good story too. So about a year before I actually um, was asked to become an Olympus Explorer, I received a just a random message from somebody um, on Instagram saying, with all of your travels, you should consider shooting Olympus. And it was funny because at the time, one of my good friends, who's a, a really good Milky Way photographer, had just purchased an Olympus camera. And I was wicked envious of how small her camera body was compared to mine. So it was crazy timing. I messaged the person back and explained that I had a great friend who shoots Olympus and I was definitely intrigued by the product, but had never really had the opportunity to try it out myself. And he sent me some loaner gear, um, which Olympus likes to do when people are what they call Olympus curious. Um, they have events at camera shops and stuff like that, where you can go and borrow some Olympus gear and, and try it out in the field. And for the first like three weeks of me having that gear in my hands, Everywhere I went, I brought my Canon setup and my Olympus setup. And at the time, I had my Olympus setup in my head as the good camera. And then, I'm sorry, the Canon setup was the good camera. And then I, in my head, had the Olympus gear as like the, eh, I'm not really sure about any of this. So every time I would see an animal, you know, it was like right around the elk. I remember being out there and like taking five photos on one camera and then switching to the next. And quickly it became apparent that I didn't need a tripod with the Olympus gear and that it was so much lighter, but I was still really stubborn to actually make the switch. Then one afternoon after a full day of shooting elk, I was driving home um, through Nederland, Colorado, and my Canon camera died because that had been my primary camera throughout the day. And a beautiful, massive bull moose, the largest bull moose I've ever seen in Colorado, like to this day, crossed the road in front of me followed by two gorgeous cow moose. And the lighting was amazing. It was, it was right before sunset. And I get so mad. I pull over on the side of the road to try and get their photos. And I'm like, great, all I have is this Olympus gear. Like these cameras, these photos are gonna stink. And I got home and I uploaded the pictures. And I, I like grabbed my boyfriend from the other room and I grabbed my roommates and was like, do you guys see this? Do you see how sharp this is? And I was zooming in on the moose's eyes and I swear I could see the reflection of my car. And that afternoon, I posted um, my Canon lens for sale on Instagram, along with all of my batteries in the charger. I kept the body because you can't sell something that beat up. But I switched and I never looked back. That is a good story. 
Uh, it was just a, a good story, switch. but it was. If Olympus listens to this podcast and just catches some excerpts, you may not be an ambassador for very long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will always be upfront and honest about how skeptical I was when I first started. I'd also heard some rumors, you know, micro four thirds is just not good in low light. You know, you're going to regret it. You love Milky Way. And I have yet to see a problem. Maybe it's because I'm not as advanced as some Milky Way shooters. I do know a big handful of Milky Way shooters who do shoot primarily in Olympus as well. But I, I was really dang skeptical. This was not like, a, oh my gosh, yes. I've been blessed by the camera gods to try these cameras out. You know, I, I really didn't want to like them. And now I am absolutely obsessed. I've heard that from more than one person. Yeah. Um, in fact, we've had other people on the podcast that have switched from full frame Canon, you know, 1DX to micro four thirds system. And their biggest, first and biggest comment was the, the lenses are so light because they, you know, a 300 millimeter lens is 600 equivalent. And so these smaller lenses that you can, you know, you can get them with a lot of glass in them. So an F28 300, you've got an F28 600. That's just insane. Yeah. It's pretty incredible to have like cut the size of my gear in half. And I love not having to have a tripod with me anywhere I go. I, they are so limiting in my opinion, when you want to move really fast or change your framing or angle quickly. It's so nice to just kind of be able to do lunges and aerobics and wave your camera around really easily and get the pictures that you want. So I have another question and this is just based on the fact that I don't know if I'd call myself, well, yes, I will. I'll call myself Olympus curious right now. <laughs> and uh, what is the video situation? Do you use them for video at all? Um, I don't actually, I did work on a video project. I was the subject of it along with um, a really beautiful bull moose. I wasn't one of the filmers. They filmed the entire project on the Olympus OMD EM1X, which is what is kind of just considered as like the best film camera that Olympus offers. I have no idea, honestly, how it compares to other film cameras, but based on how that video turned out and a few other video projects I've seen with those cameras, they're incredible. How fast does the autofocus work in the Olympus system? Yeah, that's a great question. It's lightning fast. You know, I, I used to be able to quote for one takeover that I did, I could quote the exact science behind it, but I don't remember, but uh, there's no delay. There's, it's a lot faster, at least than my Tamron and Canon setup that I was shooting with for, for years. And then how many focus points does it have inside the viewfinder? That's a good question. I mean, does it, you don't have to tell me the number, but does it go edge to edge or is it like a Canon, which gives you like, I love the Sony because I can go edge to edge with that thing. Yeah, it goes edge to edge. And there's also a setting that I've really come to like, I don't remember what it's called. I don't know if it exists on DSLRs, but uh, you can actually set the trajectory of where, you know, your subject will be moving through the frame. So rather than just a tracking autofocus, you can tell the camera, like, it will be going through this part of the grid and it autofocuses, you know, based on the trajectory that you're telling it's going to go. So I, I, it's kind of designed with like birds in mind. Like you don't want it to accidentally autofocus or track the focus onto a wing. You want it to keep the body as the sharp part. So that just kind of helps you anticipate where that body is going to go. Is that something that you have to set prior to starting to shoot or is that something that the camera just knows? No, it's something you have to set. Okay, I'm Olympus curious too. Why not <laughs> throw it in it. the mix? I got everything else. Why not? Right. 
I love it. It's so light, man. And the image stabilization is just ridiculous. Like, gosh, I, I, I own a tripod for Milky Way. I don't technically even need one for Milky Way. You can handhold Milky Way shots on these puppies. So is there in-body stabilization as well as mm -hmm. with yeah. the lens? So There's how many stops are you getting between the IBIS and the stabilization so of the lens? On the newest camera model, I believe it's seven. That's insane. Might be seven and a half. That might be a half stop too much, but yeah, it's insane. It's ridiculous. And actually the um, model that preceded the camera I have now, I believe it was like six and a half. So even that, that lower older version is still ridiculous. That's so that's, uh, an after sunset wildlife shot. I mean, it's basically a blue hour wildlife shot if you've got seven stops, right? Yeah, exactly. That's incredible. Yeah. That's just insane that you're able to get a shot like that with handheld. You know, I, that just blows my mind. So that's enough to make me Olympus curious too, to be honest. So <laughs> nice, they're going to like that. See, I redeemed myself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do with these images? Like as far as printing, do you have a size limit? So when you're dealing with the micro first thirds, what is the file size anyways? Just a, just a general file size for the camera body that you're using. I can tell you like the megapixel resolution, if that helps. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay. So, um, it's 20 megapixels, maybe a little bit more than that, like 20 point something for just the basic shooting mode. Then they also do have a mode called high res. Um, but that isn't really adapted for wildlife yet. Uh, you do need to have a still scene in order to get the high res shot. And that's 60 megapixels. So really, that's amazing. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's because it's basically shooting three images and, and right. then blending all those pixels together. Yep. So you want to have it on a tripod. You can do handheld now, um, on the newer camera, but on one of the older ones, you want to have a tripod. You don't want it to be too windy. And obviously you can't have an elk running through the frame. Right. So have you printed anything, say 20 by 30 out of that camera? Yeah. 20 by 30 is my standard print size. I've never done bigger and that's just because of the limitations of the printer that I work with. Um, certainly will be trying eventually though. There's no question that it would go oh, yeah, well no beyond that. No problem. Definitely. Yeah. And that's the case with the one DX Mark II that I use. It's only 20 something. I don't even know 24 or 22 or something. And you can go 40 by 60 easy. A lot of it has to do with the printers nowadays, too, being so good. So you get good files and good printers. I mean, you can't Definitely. go wrong. So, so Brooke, you mentioned that you actually are making a living with your photography. So maybe talk a little bit more about how that came about and what, what that means for you right now. Yeah, so it's very recent. Um, I didn't really make it ultra public because uh, I was nervous at the time, but I left my full-time job. I used to work in um, the reservations department of a large ski chain based in Colorado. Um, left that job at the end of October. I think my last day was right before Halloween. And I had been at the point where I was piecing together quite a few different photography gigs and felt like I was close to being able to make a living off of it, but was just very uncertain, wanted to have some money saved up just in case anything unforeseen came up. And around that time, Olympus reached out to me and asked if I could help them with the project surrounding this new camera launch that just happened a couple weeks ago. And it entailed me basically being on the road for a solid month 
And I knew that there was no way in heck that my corporate job was going to allow that. Um, I brought it up with my boss and he offered me six days. So I made the decision. It was a little bit sooner than I was mentally prepared for, but I made the decision to start doing living off of just the income from photography so that I actually had time to take this trip and start taking on more gigs and opportunities. And it's been great. I mean, I don't know if anybody is ever really fully ready to make the leap um, from having a comfy job with PTO and a very structured schedule, but I, I've been loving it. I mean, it, it's still insane to me. I'll go out to take pictures of elk and think to myself, I'm working right now and just, I can't, I can't take a photo because I'm smiling too big. <laughs> but it, you know what? I, I definitely will not sugarcoat it. That was a terrifying decision to make. You know, I was worried that I was going to hate it first and foremost, because I'm not necessarily a person who's really been passionate about a job before. I definitely see jobs as a way to live, um, but not as something that defines me. So I was afraid that somehow that mindset would worm its way into wildlife photography and I would lose the magic there. But that has not happened. If anything, I've fallen even more in love because I get to talk about it more and focus all of my thoughts and energy and, you know, other hobbies like reading and stuff like that and what documentaries I'm watching, everything now is so centered around animals and photography. That's really cool, Brooke. You know, good for you. Seriously. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You know what I always tell people is the fire that is underneath your butt when you quit your job, you, you can't slow down. You know, it's right. just the mindset, you know, you just get in that mindset and you're like, okay, here we go. Let's make this work. And I also, I definitely acknowledged that I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, obviously I just quit one job. So there goes half of my income, you know, that first month before I started to pick up more photography based gigs, I made some changes just around my life in general to make sure that I was prepared to live off slightly decreased income. And that's a big, I mean, 80% of why I'm now living in Salt Lake city. I lived in a great little mountain town where rent was just astronomical as was the cost of groceries, gas, um, everything that you need to live. So made the move out to somewhere quite a bit more affordable with the same access to wildlife populations. And it's definitely made the transition a lot smoother. Yeah. I think there's always things like that, that you have to, you know, something has to give, you just have to ebb and flow with this whole decision-making and then you got to give yourself the best shot at making it. And by, exactly. by reducing that level of income that you need, that just gives you just a little bit more runway to, to keep playing around. Exactly. The thing I'm scared about right now is this coronavirus. I mean, we travel so much for work. And now, you know, I was talking with a lot of the guys that I work with on these commercial jobs that we shoot. And, you know, all these companies are like, no travel. Nobody's traveling. If we're doing any shoots, it's it's in the hometown and we're keeping it really low key and they're not bringing anybody in. And it's, we'll just see where this goes. It's interesting. That's why I love doing the podcast because we can't infect anybody. Yeah, I was thinking that actually. I have a friend uh, who's an Olympus shooter who was supposed to be going to some sort of camera expo. I believe it was in the UK. And he was really looking forward to it. There were going to be some great speakers there. And they ended up canceling it on this morning when it was supposed to start on Friday. So I got about, what, a week ago an invite to Svalbard because there was a group from China that had to cancel also. And the, the trip was like two-thirds paid for. So it was going to be cheaper than you ever could do this. Well, then I didn't do it because I couldn't afford to be quarantined for two, three weeks when I came back. Even the potential of that. 
but then uh, today I got a message. Well, it's a good thing you didn't book. There's confirmed cases in Svalbard, and they're actually considering closing the island um, to incoming travel. So it's it's a big deal a world worldwide. And if you know, Jason mentioned on the last podcast that the CDC is, you know, they consider it a viable threat, even though it's still going to be a low percentage of the population. But you think three percent of the population? That means one in thirty. Yeah, you know, I, is going to get it, and then one in three hundred is, you know, potentially going to die from it. I was, I got into a discussion earlier today. I think up until honestly the last twenty four hours, I wasn't necessarily taking this all that seriously. Um, it was hard to take all the conflicting sources and figure out, okay, is this not a problem or is this a gigantic problem? But I somebody posted something along the lines of how. Even if, even if you know, my health isn't necessarily a concern, I'm young, athletic, great immune system, I am not necessarily the type of person who's at a high risk of dying from the coronavirus, but God forbid, you know, I am asymptomatic, I take a trip that I've got planned for early April, pass through a few airports, come in close contact with somebody who's immunosuppressant, and all of a sudden I'm the reason now that that person's fighting for their life. It's just, it's a weird yeah. thing to have to think about. And it's crazy relevant, you know, when you're a wildlife photographer who travels for your livelihood, but. There's going to be a lot of local shooting going on. You guys are close <laughs> to Yellowstone, so you can just hop in your little car and never have to touch anybody or talk to anybody and go do your thing and go back home and live in exactly. the bubble for a while. Thank goodness our passion <laughs> keeps us away from people populations. <laughs> Right, <laughs> And you haven't really done Yellowstone yet, have you, Brooke? No. Actually, to be honest with you, I've only been up there twice in the last year. And each time I've only been there for about two or three days and didn't have much luck. So mm, We can definitely help you out with that one, too. So. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Although he won't tell you, or maybe he just won't tell us when he gets back, what kind of luck he actually had. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps or I'll just lie. A man of mystery, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah, total mystery. <laughs> so I'm looking at your Instagram page here, and I see some polar bear stuff. And I know Jason had it on his list to, to ask you about, but that's what I keep looking over to the side here. I get your Instagram feed up. Where did you do these polar bears, and and tell us a little bit about that trip? So that was in Churchill, Manitoba. And um, that was the trip that I quit my job for. So my slogan while I was up there was just a big smile on my face saying, I quit my job for this. And it was amazing. I actually met another gal who quit her day job to be there as well. And we've been friends ever since. But uh, that, was, that was a trip for Olympus um, to work on the project, shooting with the new camera that just came out before it had launched. Um, it was kind of hybrid testing of the camera in extreme weather conditions because it's wicked windy, bitterly cold, um, very humid with those winds coming off of Hudson Bay. And also to start accumulating photos that they could use in the camera launch for marketing and advertising purposes. I was up there for, I believe it was five or six days, and I actually booked the trip, I think, four days before I left. It was a crazy scramble, because as I'm sure you guys know, Churchill is the polar bear capital of the world. Um, self-proclaimed, but definitely has a lot of credence to that. And people book their trips up to that area, I mean, a year or more in advance, because the lodging is really scarce. The 
transportation um, can be extremely expensive and not necessarily always very reliable. And I completely scrambled to put everything together. And um, Drew Hamilton at the time was guiding for, um, he's a phenomenal bear photographer that I'm sure you guys know. He was guiding on the podcast. I thought so. Okay. I wasn't sure if that was before me or after me, but he was the absolute hero of this whole trip. He got me in touch with Discover Churchill, who he was guiding for, and they just totally ragtagged for a few nights. I was staying at an Airbnb, or not an Airbnb, an actual bed and breakfast. Um, I ended up sleeping on the couch of Drew and the other guide's house because uh, there were no accommodations available for part of my trip. They totally just pieced me in wherever their tours had availability as people were canceling or feeling ill or only doing half days. They were They were getting me in the vehicles, so... They were just champions. I can't believe that we pulled that off. And the polar bear activity was just phenomenal. Phenomenal. I got there about a week before the ice uh, started to form and the polar bears left the whole area. So definitely caught the tail end of bear season and could not have been more fortunate with what we saw. There were mothers and cubs. There were bears sparring. There were bears super close to the road. There were distant bears with these gorgeous, you know, scenic backgrounds those environmental shots anything you could ever dream of in a polar bear trip i experienced it was amazing that is the toughest part up there is the accommodations the way you did it is amazing because being able to have those kind of contacts and get that set up because that's your biggest that's the biggest hurdle other than like you said the car is difficult too right but if you're going out with a tour that's pretty awesome because they have that whatever they're using yeah. a van or whatever yeah, we had these SUVs uh, that the guides would take out, and they were. One of them ended up exploding a few oh. days after I left. <laughs> so they were. <laughs> wow. There were some old vehicles, but man, you're you're eye level with the polar bears because you're not one of those tundra buggies. And actually, the bed and breakfast that I stayed at was quite similar to what you were just saying. There was my room, which was an actual guest room, and then the room across the hall. They were just renting out their son's bedroom, and he was sleeping on the couch downstairs. <laughs> And they had this big uh, Alaskan Malamute chained up in the backyard. I could see her through my window. And they told me that if I hear that dog start to bark, my job is that I have to run down into the basement, wake up the owners of the house so they can grab their shotgun, run upstairs, get ready in case the bear gets any closer to shoot rubber bullets at it to spook it out and call conservation so that they can haze it out of the neighborhood. Because we were kind of right at the edge of where town ends and the tundra starts. So... That first night I was laying in bed, just barely sleeping, waiting to listen for the, the alarm dog to start barking so that I can protect the family and the other photographers renting out their son's bedroom. It was surreal. It was a crazy moment. Very cool. Though. When we went, it's always around Halloween, right? And so you got little kids that want to go trick-or-treating. And it's like, how do you trick-or-treat when there's polar bears that could be walking down the same street? But they, what they do is they get all the little kids in the same little group and then they have polar bear patrols on each side of them, and they go house to house with polar bear patrol following them all around town. That is so cool. Because it is so real. I mean, those polar bears do show up in town pretty often. All the time. So what was the best shot that came out of that for you? I mean, I'm looking at quite a few here on Instagram. So the best shots are yet to come. I'm being very sparing with the photos that I am posting from that experience. I want more time and space so that I can even mentally process what I saw. My favorite shot is one of the first ones I took. It's this polar bear, just woke up from a nap. He rises up out of the little snowbank that he was laying in and he opens up his mouth and he yawns. 
and his tongue is sticking out like he's in the band Kiss. And he's looking just straight at me. Like I was the first thing he laid eyes on when he woke up. And his teeth are all sharp and beautiful and, and straight and wonderful. And it's just the most symmetrical, adorable, terrifying, wonderful photo that just shows you how massive these bears' mouths are. They can just <laughs> you up so easily. <laughs> Could you do that one more time in case we need to use that later in a later podcast? <laughs> so jason i've cut you off twice now i'm sorry what what were you gonna ask i just was gonna i just can't help it because i'm corny but you you were you were barely sleeping uh-huh. sorry <laughs> ouch <laughs> i know i know i apologize i apologize that was that was beautiful <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the ones you have up online are pretty cool. So if you've got some other ones that are stellar images waiting to come, it's uh, I'll be excited to see that stuff. But you said some of those are going to appear in the Olympus stuff too, so you may not put them on your Instagram. It might go up on Olympus Instagram. Yeah, there are some on the Olympus website that I have not posted on my Instagram yet that are um, on their website. And I believe there are some that have been printed on like physical adverts that go in camera stores. How cool is that to see your stuff in an advertisement? Oh, man, I cry every time. Um, two nights ago, I hit a jackrabbit, like the largest jackrabbit that's ever existed in the state of Utah, and it just destroyed the bottom of my car. It ripped off my dust shield and my wheel wells on the passenger's or driver's side. So I had to go to the dealership yesterday. I was there for like eight hours while they patched everything up. And... Uh, I walked up to the magazine rack, started flipping through one of the magazines and saw my own self and one of my foxes, like my favorite fox, actually, one of the ones that I've been photographing since I was born. And it was just the craziest moment. I was about to walk up to the front desk and be like, hey, this is me. Can I trade a signed <laughs> copy in exchange for uh, these, this maintenance you're doing on my poor car? <laughs> <laughs> I saw that on your story. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I was really excited. They had free popcorn, and they gave me a bucket of it, and I spilled it when I found myself. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, oh, that's that's Brooke. What's going on here? Hey, maybe now's a good chance, too, for you to just maybe plug yourself a little bit about, you know, if people want to go see these photos that you're talking about, how do they they go and find you? Yeah, if you want to check out any of my polar bear pictures or my foxes or my elk, my Instagram is really easy to remember. It's just Brooke Little Bear, and that's Brooke with an E. Uh, my website is littlebearwildlife.com, although cool. it might not be active today or tomorrow or the next day because I'm doing some updating, but that shouldn't take long. Where did the little bear come from? That was my next question. My mom has called me little bear since I was a kid. Um, I was obsessed. Do you guys remember the, the show on Nickelodeon called Little Bear? It was based on children's books, and it was just this fantastical world where all the animals can talk to each other. And I was obsessed with that show, and I wanted to be a little bear when I grew up. So the name has stuck forever. She still calls me that. And she also calls our dog that, which is confusing, but (laughs) we get through it. (laughs) Little bear Uh, peed on the floor again. Yeah, and it could be either of us. Equal chance. (laughs) Hey, so tell us a little bit about what's your favorite animal to photograph and why. I mean, I know, I think I have a sneaking suspicion, but. <laughs> I'm looking on the Instagram and just counting. Yeah, right? I have a suspicion too, yeah. Foxes. I, okay, 
I had never seen a fox in the wild until about two and a half years ago. I saw my very first wild fox a few miles from my house in Silverthorne, Colorado. And it was super distant. It was just this beautiful flash of red fur on a really snowy day. And I was mesmerized and I got this terrible photo, so blurry. The fox's face isn't visible. It's just his butt and tail. And like, I was in love with that photo. I still am. It's like one of my favorite things ever because there's so much emotion tied to that image. And I just became completely obsessed with trying to find more foxes. So I spent a lot of time in that area of town. It's kind of where the mountains uh, and the open space starts. So there's definitely a neighborhood. There's a lot of houses, which provides the foxes from protection for predators. So they like to den up really close to the roads or underneath people's um, porches and actual human structures. And I figured that out pretty quick, just looking at tracks and, and scat and all that good stuff. And I was really lucky because it was end of May um, after I'd seen that first fox. And all of a sudden, one afternoon, I find this very, very sleepy fox laying in a little patch of sunlight. So I hop out of my car and I set up and start taking pictures of her. And I, I keep on, she's really paying attention to something behind her. She kept on lifting her head really and looking towards somebody's front porch. And she just seemed really concerned as to what was going on in that direction. I was confused because I couldn't hear anything. There were no dogs barking. There were no cats hanging out on the porch or anything like that or in the window. And all of a sudden she lifts up her head again and she starts whipping her head around, kind of cocking her ears a little bit in that direction and four babies pop their heads out. And I immediately started crying and I didn't get any photos of the babies because I couldn't stop crying. And then they went back in. They didn't come out again until the sun was down. So I didn't get any good pictures. But I went out back to that site every single day from the end of May uh, through the end of June and photographed so many moments, so many great photos in terms of, you know, quality of the image, so many great photos in terms of fox behavior. Yeah, I, I made it my mission the next baby season to start locating more dens in the area. Now I have about nine or ten that I kind of rotate between. So I'll start the morning at one den that I know is active pretty early, head up the mountain to another one. Um, back down to a different area and just get to know all of these foxes. You know, there's one fox that I've been photographing since that first den year. She had her own set of kits the next year. And then um, I saw her about two weeks ago and I can't tell if she's got, got any kits on the way, but it's cool to watch them grow up. You know, I have such a crazy close relationship with these foxes that don't even know who the heck I am. Now, now Brooke, you know, people are going to be like, Come on, really? How do you know that's the same fox? Um, she got frostbite on her ear. So she's got oh, like perfect. a little gap missing on her left ear, kind of in the back on one of the creases. And it's clear as the day could be when you see her from behind that it's the same foxy. Well, and I believe you. Trust me. I'm just saying I know a lot of people ask me, how do you know that's the same deer or the same bull yeah. or whatever it is, right? But they do have the very unique personalities and unique markings in that that you can tell, right? I like to describe it as like to put it in layman's terms. Like if you have a golden retriever, you can put your golden retriever at doggy daycare with 90 other golden retrievers and you're going to show up and still know right away which one's yours. There's just enough uniqueness to the animal's face and body type that you're able to recognize them still. Well, you know, and they use that, that kind of identification for all kinds of things, you know, especially with marine mammals. So yeah, it's just, I think we get more, acute senses to that kind of stuff because we spend so much time with these whether it's a bear or a fox or an elk or a deer or a, 
whatever. I mean, it's easy for us where some people, like you just said, dog is a dog is a dog or a fox is a fox is a fox. They just don't have that right. sensibility as, as that we do as far as picking them out. Right. You can probably do that with the swift foxes too, right, Ron? Yeah. Yeah, you definitely get to know the the individuals and you know for sure which ones are going to be more tolerant when you mm-hmm. see them. They're a little bit they're a little bit tougher to distinguish um individually if you see multiple dens in the same area because there there is a lot of likeness and they're so lean and thin they're all built almost exactly the same. But there will be coloration differences or scars, you know. There was a there was one that had a, a very distinct scar and it was probably from after seeing later uh, the behavior where they're fighting over a mate or a potential mate, that's likely what it was from, unless it was a coyote, because that's their biggest predator. You can also tell quite a bit from their whisker um, patterns. If you have a straight on, it's not something that you can tell in the moment by any means, unless you've got laser vision, but you can compare a photo that you take one day to one that you've taken a few weeks ago and compare and see if those whisker um, patterns match up. And then you're like, oh, that's the same fox. He's grown quite a bit. Or, oh, she's not looking so good. You can definitely do that now that you shoot the Olympus and it's too sharp, right? Right, exactly. That's, that's <laughs> when I started noticing that, actually. I was like, God, these whiskers are so dang sharp. But wait a second. These are the same whiskers as that fox kit that I shot last year. And then you get the images side by side and you count them and you line them up and connect the dots. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that is the same fox. So how long have you been in Utah now? Uh, since the beginning of February. So it feels like a long time because I've done so much, but not long, about a month. Okay. So have you found any foxes in the area? Uh, uh, uh. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, yes. Yes. Got a tip from you, Jason. <laughs> oh, cool. cool. <laughs> and it's paid off. I, you know, I haven't had any close encounters, but, and I, and I don't know if there's going to be any babies at that den this year, but I'm starting to cast my net. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, urban foxes are so awesome to photograph because you they're just habituated enough that they're not going to tear out of there, mm-hmm. but they're wild enough to just be a wild animal. The other thing too, is you can move in within a reasonable distance and, and know that you're, they're accustomed to the people. So it's not something that you're going to screw it up for the foxes. Right. It's like a small version of, you know, the cat, my national park bears there. Just habituated enough. So, Brooke, I know you've had some crazy cool experiences photographing wildlife. I mean, all of us have, right? That's one of the things that keeps me coming back. Um, Do you have any, like, really cool experiences that you want to share with us? Yeah, I have a lot. (laughs) (laughs) We've got lots of time. so. (laughs) I'll tell you guys my favorite. My favorite one from this past um, end of summer, early fall. So, my second favorite animal to shoot would definitely be elk. I think not even just because I I find them to be just gorgeous subjects, but they're such dynamic animals just in terms of how much their behavior changes throughout the year. I always say like, if you want to get to know an elk, the time to get to know them and their behaviors and how they respond in certain environments and conditions would be springtime when they don't have antlers, they're coming off of a winter, they're really hungry, they're really scraggly looking. But if you want to photograph an elk and get those really, really impressive muscly, you know, gorgeous elk photos that we all go crazy about. That's obviously the rut. So this past summer, it was around the end of August. I went out to go look for some elk. I, it wasn't rut season quite yet, but I wanted to start dialing in where different bulls were hanging out. So I woke up wicked early at like 3 a.m., 
left my town, got to the area that I was going to look in that day, right as the sun was coming up. And sure enough, I'd been back to this, this area quite a few times that summer and in years prior. So I had a pretty good idea of where those guys were going to be. Found a few bulls hanging out um, just a little ways up into the trees. So I started hiking up in that direction. And as the sun came up, it was just the most gorgeous lighting. Got some great photos of these pre-rut beauties. They were really, really active, trying to get the last of their velvet off, just rubbing up on the trees. And finally, they all start to break apart. And I picked my favorite one, who just seemed like he had the most energy, to start shadowing further up into the mountains. So I followed him for a while, um, from sunrise until about 12.30. And around that time, he laid down on the top of this small hill and fell asleep. And I was like, well, I'm pretty far away from my car now, and I'm not exactly even entirely sure which direction my car is in. And I'm feeling pretty tired myself. I've been up since 3 a.m. It was a cold morning with a lot of walking. So I just picked a tree not far from where he curled up, and I curled up myself and dozed off. And I woke up a few times to the sound of this bull elk snoring. And it was just one of those moments. Like It wasn't even about the photography anymore. It was just about spending time with one of my favorite animals and hearing its breaths and hearing its snore and burp in its sleep. It was just like such an intimate moment that most people don't really ever get to experience with animals. And I, I swear I dream about that moment like at least once a week. It was so cool. I had that same that same experience with Mike in Estes Park. <laughs> <laughs> so much so that he went out and slept in the car <laughs> that that pretty much says it all though right the the intimate moments you can have with wildlife where they basically just allow you into their world because it's not always the case when they when they allow you and, the, and they're willing to be vulnerable so you think of the the two most vulnerable times to, you know, uh, basically a prey species, even as big as an elk when they're sleeping or when they're going to get a drink. Yeah. And if, if he's willing to sleep there with you in his presence, with you in sight, he obviously knows you're there. Nobody could say that bull wasn't comfortable. Right. And that's, I think you described very well, not, not necessarily that exact situation because I haven't, haven't had that. I've had him lay down and, you know, sleep, but I've not curled up and done the same, but just the opportunity as a wildlife photographer, you know, some people get it. Some people don't, but having those intimate moments with wildlife is, is really what it's all about. And I, I feel like I felt a lot of the same things that the elk felt in that moment. Like you mentioned, he knew I was there. He was comfortable sleeping in my presence and I knew that he knew that I was there. So I knew that he wasn't a threat to me if I curled up for a bit and dozed. And I also knew that that elk was going to know long before I did, if any sort of bear walked through the little opening that we were hanging out in. And I knew he was going to kind of be like an advanced warning system if there was any amount of danger whatsoever approaching. So I felt that was the safest I've ever felt napping without a tent or sleeping bag. I'll tell you that much. I've actually done that same thing where, and not necessarily falling asleep, next to a, a bull but so if i want to photograph at rocky mountain national park and i want to leave from here it's an hour and a half drive and if you want to be there before the sun comes up in the summertime you're leaving here at three o'clock in the morning you get up there and you shoot during the good light and then oftentimes you're two or three miles away from the from where you parked 
So I just take a nap. You know, I usually just lay down. And a lot more times than once, you wake up and the elk have moved into where you're at. You know, and it's just, it's the coolest experience because obviously they're comfortable with you and they know you're there for sure. And you just kind of, it's just one of those deals where you just, it's hard to, it's hard to describe. You know, I, I had an experience not with elk, but with sheep that was similar to that. And I actually just was out with a few buddies and I had a, a you actually come up behind me and lay down right behind me, like literally touching my leg. And it blew my mind because this you was totally cool with me and, you know, they just accept you, right? So, yeah, those experiences are just, they're just priceless. You just can't explain it. People don't have the, that haven't had the opportunity to have those experiences. It's, you know, you feel, I kind of feel bad for them, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think about it a lot. You know, it's something that so few people in this day and age will ever experience. But I think it's something that throughout history was quite common for us. You know, we were way more in tune with nature. And when we didn't necessarily have human spaces versus wild spaces, it was all one. We all occupied the same forests, the same mountain ranges, et cetera. So it's something that's like so vital and core to who we are as a species that we've lost touch with. Yeah, very good point. So do you have a dream animal that you haven't got to photograph yet that you want to photograph? Yes, mountain lions. I've had some great mountain lion encounters when I don't have a camera on me or when they're too far away to actually get a shot of them. I've been on just a mad wild mountain lion chase or wild goose chase, but chasing mountain lions instead of geese. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Ever since I moved to Utah, I one of my first days out just exploring, I found some insanely fresh mountain lion tracks. Like, I mean, they had to have been made minutes before just because of how hard it was snowing. My tracks were filling in after like 10 minutes. And I got so scared. And instead of following them in the direction that they were going, I followed them in the direction that they came from just so I could get a better idea of where this cat was hanging out and if that if, if they led to some sort of den site or uh, somewhere that had maybe been a fresh kill I found tons of old sign from older kills that are partially buried and then I kind of mentally freaked myself out when a bird flew out of a bush and I thought it was a mountain lion <laughs> pouncing from my throat and uh, I ran back to my car and I left but I've gone back numerous times now one of the times I found a really really fresh kill and I sat on it for the whole day and never saw the cat but I'm going to still keep going after it. This is my goal for the year. It's probably I want because the cat was watching you. Oh, I know she was. And isn't that the <laughs> coolest feeling when you just, you know, they know you're there. You know, they're watching you. And then they just don't <laughs> <know> themselves. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that on your story. And I'm like, Brooke, did you have anything with you to protect yourself? <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I always carry when I'm um, doing these missions. And I do, I have a Garmin in reach as well. So I have some sort of safety net because I do go alone all the time. So, you know, I always think about that. How many, how many lions have you walked past in their years of photographing wildlife that they're just sitting back and we're, we're all very observant and picking out wildlife is pretty easy, right? Usually, you know, you just hear about, oh, there was a sighting over here. And I was like, well, I was just there. Certainly somewhere along the way you've, you've done it. And they're just so difficult to, to photograph in all those years it's just so hard yellowstone i think is a pretty good well this year they had a good opportunity somebody did or several people oh, did yeah. when that when that was all going on i was watching people's instagram stories of the mountain line right behind the gas station i was on google maps like how fast can i get i was actually in new jersey at the time i was on the east coast i was like how fast can i get to jackson <laughs> the answer was not fast enough. 
but you know, somebody <laughs> asked me recently, it was, I was hanging out with some friends and we were having just one of those philosophical conversations where you start asking each other the craziest questions. But one of my friends asked me if, if I could see one statistic from my life when I die, which one would be the worst and most frustrating for me to see? And I decided if it was some sort of instant replay where I had to watch all of the times that I've either driven or walked right past the exact animal that I was looking for. <laughs> I think that would be so frustrating because you know what happens. I don't, I don't want to see that. There are so many opportunities that the moose was just right in the willows and the shadows were, were not in your favor and you walked right past him or that mountain lion ran out behind your car three minutes after you pulled out of the area you were waiting in. Or watched you from a tree while you walked circles around. Yeah. yeah. So I've told this story before, and I don't know if I've told it on the podcast, but if you guys know a guy by the name of Michael Quinton, he's a National Geographic photographer. We just got to talking one day, and he's like, you know what? I was talking about wanting to find some links. And he's he's like, what you got to do, the trick for links is, is you're, you've got to watch for links out of your rearview mirror. He's like, more times than not, as soon as you drive by, that links will walk across the road. And how many times do you think about looking behind you, right? And he has told me on several occasions where he knows it's a good links area that he'll spend more time looking out the back of his rearview mirror and he finds links quite often that way. See, now you've got me defining what eternal suffering would be. And <laughs> I think that's it. You know, how many shots did I miss? <laughs> like the first time I ever saw a moose disappear was... I was just watching a moose across the river. It was before I really got into wildlife photography. So I didn't have a camera with me. And she's just eating, munching on grass. She's standing in front of a giant, you know, um, patch of willows. And she takes two steps and all of a sudden she is gone. Those willows just completely obscured her. And with the shadows that were being cast from the willows themselves and the sun at a low angle, if I hadn't seen that animal go right into that bush, I never, ever, ever would have had a clue that she was there and I've seen bears do the same thing you know a, a polar bear is curled up in a snowbank it's got its paw over its nose you don't have a clue that thing is there until all of a sudden it lifts its head to smell the wind or you know a mama bear and her cubs walking below the tall grass and then all of a sudden you see the mama bear lift up and her head just pops up or her ears and top of her forehead pops up above the grass for a split second it's the only way that you know that she's there yeah, it's pretty incredible. To say these giant things that can disappear right before your eyes is crazy to think about. Yeah, it's incredible, right? Like, like for example, when you see, uh, and you know, elk walking through the woods or a bear. That's a great example. They're super quiet. I mean, it's incredible how big they can be and how quiet they can be too. So that doesn't help your opportunities much either. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. So do you have any do you have any tips for us, like as far as maybe you know? If somebody was trying to go down the same path that you've gone down, what would be your best bit of advice to them? Um, I think that it's two-factor, and yet those two factors go hand-in-hand. Hand. So one of them, I would say, is be open to strangers. And I know that's a very strange thing to say, and I know that photography, specifically wildlife photography, can by nature, be a very isolated um, hobby or passion or career. You know, every time I go out to shoot, I, I do go by myself. But being open to start chatting with people on social media or, you know, 
via their website, shooting an email to a photographer that you really admire, just asking them some sort of technical question or the logistics of a trip that you see that they've taken, starts opening up doors so that you can start networking in the photography world, which is kind of hard to do when most of your career takes place in a forest. You know, you've got to get creative with how you're actually going to network in this world. So being open to strangers, never being afraid to strike up a conversation with somebody digitally. You don't know what doors that might open down the line or who they'll introduce you to digitally and when you'll cross paths in real life or what that might lead to. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, is just never think that you're good enough. Never get comfortable with your style. You know, we, we live in this world now. It used to be not that many years ago that one great photo can make your career, right? Everyone's seen the, um, the photo of the bear on the Katmai Falls with the fish jumping into his mouth. Once upon a time, that was enough to put you on the map. Now we live in a day and age when Instagram and Facebook and the accessibility of creating your own website has made it so that there's so much more pressure to put out a photo of that magnitude like once a week. Or for some people, they're trying to share an amazing photo every single day. So never get comfortable and think just because you got one incredible shot that you're done because you have to put in a lot more work now than ever to stand out from the rest of the crowd. Amen, sister. Words of wisdom. I'm taking notes. <laughs> you know, it's easy to think of that as a negative thing. People love to get caught up in how social media is making everybody think they're a photographer. And in my opinion, yeah, let's make everybody think they're a photographer so that the people who want to stand out have to work harder. And so that images are better than they've ever been before. It's, it's really driving this industry to a level it's never really been. I think that for a time, being a wildlife photographer was just taking a picture of that animal and adding it to your catalog. You know, I got a lynx, I got a mountain lion, I got a polar bear, I got this. But it's not just that anymore. It's the way you show their environment. It's the way you show the season through the colors and the tone of your image. It's the way you show the mood of what that animal is actually living in. You know, how you, how you set your white balance tells a tale. You know, is this a cold scene? Am I showing you that this, this bear, it's the end of autumn, the winter winds blew down from the mountains really fast and it's freezing its butt off out here trying to make sure it's got enough food before it goes, goes into hibernation for the winter. How are, we, how are we telling that story better than we ever have before as wildlife photographers? Man, we can make the whole podcast out of that, just that tip and be done. Drop the mic. Last 10 minutes. <laughs> yep, mic drop. So what's next for you, Brooke? What is next for me? Gosh, I wish I knew. I've been having a rough time getting my trips in order this year. I was supposed to be back up in Churchill right now, actually, for Aurora season and then potentially some baby polar bear action. Um, I ended up not being able to get up there when I was scheduled to because of a strike causing the train that I was going to take to shut down. Um, and then I had some Alaska plans for the summer in the works, which just fell through. We got outbid on our permit by a film crew. So now I'm kind of scrambling to put together a new idea of where I'm going to be in the next few months. And I don't know right now, no idea. Wherever I end up, I know it's going to be amazing, but I I've been kind of in panic mode like the last week, you know, I, I no. missed the boat for a lot of the permits that I would have wanted. Cause I thought I was going to be a little bit more locked into some plans and all of those fell to pieces, but that's, that's how this goes. That's the life. Well, don't panic. There's Utah's yeah. a big place. Trust me. And, and we, we, you haven't even stepped foot on antelope. By, oh, yeah, you did recently. Great. Or yeah, just, only for an afternoon, just like around yeah. a few hours. Yeah, Antelope Island's a great place, too. So, yeah. get you out. 
I'm, I'm excited to have a new region to explore. And even if the plans that I had originally had lined up for summertime don't go as expected, I mean, my plan B is drive up to Yellowstone since I'm now only a few hours away. And like, that's probably the best plan B anybody could ever have. So I'll be fine. It'll There's be good. some areas not too far from you in Nevada too. You know, yeah. I've heard that, but I'm not super familiar with any of the lay of the land or population. So I've been hesitant to explore. I want to see a red rock country mountain lion on a cliff. So do I. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> well, any other questions, guys? Yeah, I think you you did have the mic drop on your pro tip for sure. And yeah, for sure. I appreciate those words because so many times people get caught up in the fact that, you know, well, I used to make my living doing this or it used to be a lot easier. And, you know, as professionals, it's, you've got to make your stuff so good now that they can't afford to say no, as opposed to not having, you know, the competition that that wasn't there in the past. So I definitely appreciate those words. And for new photographers, don't ever be content because you are never good enough because somebody out there is working harder. Mm-hmm, exactly. And you know, our subjects are working so hard just to be alive. The least we can do is work hard to capture their life a little bit better than we ever have before. Another mic drop. <laughs> I know, right? I've, got, I've just got Brooke Bartleson quotes going on over here. <laughs> <laughs> can, I use, can I use some of those when I post some of my photos, Brooke? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> writing, writing was my first love, so I definitely have journal after journal filled with all of these thoughts. That's cool. <laughs> well, then I see a book in your future. Yeah, if I can fig- if if I can if I could hold a topic long enough to make that happen. My new favorite books is that journal and Michael, you know the author's name, but he uh, he lived in Denali and he basically journaled every day. Tom Walker. And and that's the book. Yeah, Tom Walker. <clears throat> thank you. That is the book, and and he didn't hold a thought for very long. You know, it was a few paragraphs a day. I think that that is something that definitely intrigues people. So well, thank you, Brooke. Thank um, you. Really appreciate it and really encourage people to go out and take a look at your work. Uh, the Fox images are unbelievable. And thank you. You know, there's also a good variety of, and you guys, I believe, Jason, you guys met in Colorado, correct? Yes. Yeah, we did. Um, I was, we were out both chasing elk together and we kept crossing past but just not at the same time we finally got to meet up and that it was actually really good to finally meet her in person yeah, and he gave me the tip that ended up leading to some of my favorite elk photos from the entire rut so that was a really good day for me <laughs> i think jason is the elk whisperer <laughs> oh he totally is there's no doubt about it <laughs> yeah well i'm looking forward to getting out with you again Brooke. seriously we, we need to make something happen yeah, um, I feel like it's really nice to have you super close by now that I moved um, to help me learn the lay of land, have somebody to actually go shoot with for once. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you, everybody. It's been awesome to be on here with y'all. We got a windows down, driving down the 405, sing along to the radio. Mm-mm. We're going to make it someday. Nothing's going to get in our way. We will be the biggest. Time.